comes from Genesis chapter 15. Let's make sure I arrange myself here appropriately. Genesis 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I shall gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for a certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated four hundred years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions." You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking brazier and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our mighty and loving Heavenly Father, in this wonderful passage which shows your faithfulness, Help us, Lord, to learn of you today that you might increase our own faith and assurance in the promises that you make. Help me, Lord, to preach faithfully. May we all receive from you a blessing of encouragement and challenge to walk on, trusting in all that you have promised us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, today we'll be looking at the nature of saving faith, what it is, how it works, and the promises it rests upon. And to start, I'd like to share with you a story that I first heard somewhere about a Katoomba convention. Uh, Who the speaker was or which even year it was, I can't remember now. 
But the story went something like this. Somewhere in America, an inner city apartment block is on fire. Soon, the building is belching out black smoke and angry flames. And residents raise the alarm, the call goes out and the fire brigade arrives. But the situation is desperate. The fire is too fierce and for some people the only option is to jump. So the fire chief is yelling out his orders and he's getting his men in the street to catch people as they fall in those safety blankets that they have. And thankfully, many lives are saved. But on one floor, there's a girl who refuses to jump. And no matter how much they call out to her, no matter how desperately they cry, she stays there clinging to the window, petrified. It's terrible to see. Why won't she jump? What's stopping her from taking the plunge? Well, the problem is this girl is blind. She's been blind from birth. She can feel the flames and she knows the danger, but she can't see the people below or the blanket that they're holding to catch her. She's blind. And because she can't recognise any of the voices that are calling out to her from below, she is too terrified to jump. And I suppose the story might have ended there if it weren't for the fact that her father, when he heard about the fire, came racing home from work. And when he got there, he called out, Darling, trust me, I'm here and I promise the firemen will catch you, but you need to jump now. And she did, and her life was saved. Her father's voice, the voice that she recognised and trusted, made all the difference. So you see, actually, her faith wasn't a blind faith, was it? Even though she was physically blind by birth, her decision to jump was based on the knowledge that her father had her best interest at heart and that he loved her. So you could say that she jumped into her father's arms. Her faith was based on relationship. And I don't think God would have it any other way with us either, because that's the nature of saving faith. It's always based on a reasonable hope in a loving relationship. And in our passage today, saving faith is front and centre. God will speak, and Abram will hear his voice and heed the call by faith. As we read in verse 6, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abram believed the Lord. And he credited it to him as righteousness. This is the righteousness that comes by faith and not by works, so that no one may boast. So then, today we have, first of all, a word of great comfort in verses 1 to 3. God declares that he is Abram's shield and very great reward. This is the foundational relationship upon which all Christian hope is built. And then we have these two promises which Abram will believe in savingly. In verses 4 to 6, it's the promise of an offspring or seed who will be Abram's son and heir, who is ultimately Christ. And then in verses 7 and 8, there's the promise of a land which will become the inheritance of Abram's offspring and which ultimately leads to the new creation. These promises point to Christ and to the new creation. And then finally, most importantly, in verses 9 to 21, God ratifies the covenant. He promises that he will bless Abram and his offspring forever. 
And today we are the beneficiaries of that covenant, for by faith we are adopted as children of Abraham and are counted as heirs according to the promise. It's kind of like a marriage ceremony, but it's more than a marriage. The Lord commits himself to Abram and to his offspring. God is saying to Abram, I will be your God and you will be my people. God says, I'll move heaven and earth to make this happen. In fact, I'm even prepared to lay my life on the line so that the covenant blessings will be yours. So my first point today concerns a word of great comfort, verses 1 to 3. God comforts Abram in verse 1. And this is a great word of comfort. It is. But I wonder as I read this, as thinking about the passage, why does Abram need God's comfort now? I mean, what is it on his mind that's troubling him so? What is troubling Father Abram? Well, I think Abram, first of all, has come to that place of reflective sort of contemplation and even emotional exhaustion that often comes, as it were, after the party's over and after everyone's gone home. Think about what we saw last week, how he did all those amazing things after all the excitement when he led an army, when he defeated kings and successfully rescued Lot. It must have been a huge adrenaline rush. In chapter 14, verse 16, remember last week we're told he recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. It was a huge success. And and all the women and children there would have been laughing and hugging one another and all the fathers would have rejoiced and everyone would have said, three cheers for Abram. Abram is the hero of the hour. But afterwards, when he goes home, His own tent is quiet, for Abram had no children. He and Sarai were were childless, and they were getting old. And for them, there would be no laughter in their tent tonight, no children to hug or to play with. I think Abram would have felt pretty sad about that. And perhaps, too, he may have been worried that the defeated kings could come back, as it were, to settle the score with him. After all, Abram's name would be writ large after such a great victory and he must have feared becoming the target the next time round. So no wonder Abram's in a sombre frame of mind at the start of chapter 15. He's childless and he's wondering what tomorrow may bring. But God sees his troubled heart and in his mercy... He brings this word of comfort, which is just exactly what Abram needs to hear. And so in verse 1 we read, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. See, this is a big comfort. After Abram had rescued Lot from the clutches of Ketelaima and his confederates, after Abram had been blessed by the mysterious Melchizedek, after Abram had refused payment from the king of Sodom, lest that king should ever say, I made Abram rich, after Abram went home to his own family, to his own tent, after all these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram, do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield, your very great reward. Now Abram is standing in the presence of our holy God, 
And as the world melts away, he hears the voice of his heavenly father speaking to him, full of grace and truth and full of comfort and assurance. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. Fear not, for I am with you, says the Lord. Be strong and of a good courage. Your enemies can't touch you. Those who hate you can't harm you. And soon you'll have a family of your own. God's word is indeed a great comfort to his downcast people. And just as Abram was feeling low and was comforted by God, so we can be comforted by God's word today in our trials and in our troubles. For example, just for myself, I have to say I found verse 1 an excellent reminder. After all the things I've been facing, uh, I've been feeling down. It's been troubling. It's been hard. But I've learnt that faith and fear are not mutually exclusive in the Christian life. Courage is not the absence of fear, but the mastery of it. Courage is faith under fire. Trembling in our boots, we stand. But then... God's word strengthens us so that we can stand. We stand firm in the victory of Christ our Saviour. So if you are perhaps feeling down or discouraged or burdened by a load of cares, I encourage you to read your Bible, particularly this passage. It's such an encouraging passage. Let your heavenly Father speak to you. As he spoke to Abram, his word is for you as well as his child. Read this passage and pray over the promises for they are strong promises and they lead you to Jesus and they lead you to the cross but they lead beyond the cross even into the new creation. Big promises from our big God. Read the passage. Be encouraged. You are greatly loved and that by God. Do not be afraid, my child. I am your shield your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Now the truth comes out, you see. Abram's problem, first of all, is his childlessness. He realises that if he doesn't have a child, well, his hope will die with him. An adopted son, perhaps, Eliezer of Damascus, but not one of his own flesh and blood. And it raises the question for Abram, what's the point? The Apostle Paul also says, if for this life only we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. If there's no future, what's the point? For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Abram understood that. God has already made big promises to Abram. Back in Genesis chapter 12, he said, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's a big promise. Again, in Genesis chapter 13, even just last week, we saw how God promised the land to Abram's offspring. 
But now Abram is asking for something more. What he really needs is a resurrection hope. A a hope and a promise of God that's stronger than death and larger than life. He needs a son who can receive the inheritance and then pass it on all the way into the new creation. O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? Well, now God answers Abram in the most emphatic way through two promises. First of all, the promise of an offspring, verses 4 to 6. Eliezer will not be your heir. Your son will come from your own body and your descendants will be innumerable. This is God's promise of an offspring. Listen to this from verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. What a wonderful scene. Standing out outside the door of his tent, looking up at the sky. That myriad of stars, uncountable, vast. And then God said to him, So shall your offspring be. Wow. Bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. Such is the promise of God to Abram. A son will come from your own loins. And God confirms the promise now with a marvellous sign as we see him standing outside in the early morning, looking up at the night sky, trying to count the stars. Take a good long look, Abram. Feel the size of my promise, how big it is. I am the Lord of heaven and earth. I am the star maker. And if I can make the stars, then I can make a galaxy of children for you. That's all Abram needed to know. Verse 6, this wonderful verse. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. See, here's the thing. Abram knew the living God. He knew the God of creation who gives life to the dead and who calls things that are not as though they are. This thing that would seem to be impossible is actually going to happen. And Abram believes it. So against all hope, Abram, in hope, believed He believed that God was not only willing to keep his promises, but that God was able to keep his promises. And so Abram became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. But now the question is, well, with all these offspring, where will they live? And so the second promise comes into play. This is my third point about the promise of a land in verses 7 and 8. It's the same promise that God has made to Abram earlier, but now this promise is to be extended and enriched for Abram's joy and for his assurance of faith. 
So in verse 7, God also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, again, you see, still needing more from God, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I shall gain possession of it? How can I know? Abram presses God to give him more. It's as if he's saying, Lord, I believe, yet help me in my unbelief. How can I know? After all, I'm not that young anymore. Not a spring chicken, neither is my wife. Can't you give me something more? A sign to show that you'll never forget your promises to me this day. Oh, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I shall gain possession of this land that you have promised to me and my offspring? Well, now in the rest of the passage, God is going to give Abram what he has asked for, for God is so gracious, such a wonderful, generous God. Basically, God signs the contract, the contract, the covenant that is to be made. The promises are already set on the page, the promises of an offspring and of a land, but now God is going to bind himself to this covenant. He's going to ratify it. And commit himself to blessing Abram and his offspring forever. So this is my final point for today, verses 9 to 21. The whole of the rest of the passage. Now in this section, we see first of all that Abram is told by God to go and prepare the sacrifices, but not in the usual way. For when these animals are killed, they are to be cut in two down the middle. Thump. So that each half can be laid opposite the other to form a corridor of carcasses. It's actually quite a gruesome scene, isn't it? Verse 9. So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. And you might be wondering, what on earth is going on here? It's a bit strange, isn't it? Well, the thing is, this is actually how contracts were signed in ancient times. They didn't use pen and paper like we do. They used these covenant ceremonies to bind one another to the promises made. Contracts weren't merely written, they were cut. They were cut. So this is a covenant-cutting ceremony, and this is how it works. Normally, this is how it would work. Each party would bring their sacrifices to the covenant-cutting ceremony, and after the sacrifices are killed, each party would lay their, the carcasses uh, on the ground to create a corridor of carcasses, just as Abraham has done here. And then, together, we would walk down the corridor of dead animals, as if to say, may God make me like these carcasses if I fail to keep my side of the bargain. That's what's going on here. And I've got to say, the idea of laying your life on the line like this would make you think twice about breaking your promises, wouldn't it? And by the way, this is, the, is not the only example of this exact ceremony that you find in the Bible. I've got the reference up there to the other one, Jeremiah 34, 18. The same kind of ceremony is in view. 
Only this time, God is rebuking the covenant breakers because they didn't keep their promises. And God says to them in Jeremiah 34, 18, the men who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat like the calf they cut in two and then walked between its pieces. It's the same covenant-cutting ceremony that's in view. Only these silly people cut the covenant and broke the promises. Why would you cut a covenant in the presence of the Lord, bind yourself to the death, as it were, and then fail to keep your promises? It's a death wish to cut a covenant that you don't intend to keep. So let's come back to our passage, to Genesis 15, and consider then what an astonishing thing it is that we are about to witness here. Now that you understand something of the ceremony, look at who's doing all the steps. God himself is binding himself in a covenant to the death, which will require him to bless Abram and his offspring with a land that will be theirs forever. Let me remind you, these promises lead straight to Christ, to the victory of the cross, but then on to the new creation. So then first, God makes his promises to Abram. And then it sort of takes place over, over a day. During the night, he tells Abram to go out and count the stars in the sky, and that's a sign for Abram to see about his offspring. Then as the sun rises, God tells Abram to prepare the sacrifices at the place where the covenant is to be cut. And then during the day, the birds of prey come down on the carcasses, and Abram has to drive them away. That's in verse 11. I think this may signify, as it were, a time of testing and waiting upon the Lord. And then, verse 12, the end of the day, sunset. Things get really interesting. For now the Lord comes to Abram in a dream and he commits himself to this covenant without asking Abram to do anything. Look at verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. It's like reality just falls away and it's just Abram and the Lord. Abram is about to witness the most astonishing covenant-cutting ceremony ever. God himself will commit himself even to death to keep his promises to bless Abram. Normally, both parties would walk down the corridor between the carcasses that have been cut in two, but that's not what happens here. Here, God does it all. God does it all. It is God alone who makes the promises. It's God alone who binds himself to the keeping of the promises. All Abram has to do is to watch and believe and be thankful. No conditions are placed upon him. It's a covenant of grace. God does it all. This is the very nature of saving faith. Our salvation does not rest upon us keeping the law. It it relies on God keeping the promises. The promises which he has bound himself to keep for Abram and his offspring and for all who will love him 
and call upon his name. God does it all. So look at verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, but the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Well, God now gives Abram a brief outline of the future that awaits the nation of Israel, who are the people of promise. People of the promise. And the fulfilment of God's promise to Abram will not come quickly or easily. There'll be suffering, there'll be enslavement, there'll be all of these trials that they need to to go through. But it will come. The fulfilment of God's promise will come. For God himself is willing to keep his promises even to the death if necessary. That's what this covenant-cutting ceremony is about. It means that the final scene in our passage today where God's power and presence is displayed is a moment where we see God foreshadowing what must now take place at the cross. And we see these strange signs, the brazier and the flaming torch passing down through the corridor of carcasses. So now you know why Genesis 15 is one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible. This is the moment where God binds himself to his promises and puts his life on the line for sinners like us. This is the moment where Jesus effectively agrees to go to the cross. It happens here in verses 17 and 18. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen... A smoking brazier and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites and Jebusites. And yes, that's a lot of land. And it was only achieved during the time of King David and Solomon when Israel's boundaries extended and filled that much space. All of that really is just a foreshadowing of the new creation to come, the greater land of promise that we look forward to today. And meanwhile, the rest, as they say, is history. In terms of application, I think faith and worship are the most appropriate responses today in light of what we've just learnt. It's all of grace. God does it all, but we need to respond to what he has done for us. God doesn't meet us halfway. He doesn't even meet us most of the way. God does it all. He keeps his promises. And all we need to do is trust in him. So let me remind you of these things today. Four things to finish. First, our greatest hope is found in God alone. No matter what trials or troubles you face, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, there is a God who can deal with that. So when you're afraid, run to him. When you're sinful, turn to him. When you're sad, you can lean on him. Our hope is in God alone. 
We let one another down all the time. I mean, it's great when we do uphold one another and God calls us to do that and and undoubtedly there is great comfort when we gather around together. But there are times when there is only one to whom we can really run and that's God because he does it all and he is there for his people. As he said to Abram, so he says to us, I am your shield and your very great reward It's a precious promise. Our greatest hope is found in God alone. Secondly, saving faith is not blind faith. Coming back to that story I began with, isn't it? But our faith rests on promises that are real and substantial. Saving faith is a solid faith, may I say, grounded on good reasons to believe. Just as God showed Abram the stars in the sky and then committed himself even to the death to bring those promises to pass. So for us today, we know what it cost Jesus to save us, even his death on the cross. We have good and strong reasons to put our hope in Jesus Christ today. Our, saving, our faith in him is a saving faith. It is not a blind faith. Third, salvation comes by grace alone through faith alone. Remember, God does it all. Abram didn't have to do anything except to believe in the Lord And God credited it to him as righteousness. Again, it's the same for us today. Our salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, and not by works, so that no one may boast. And then finally, I urge you and encourage you to rejoice in God's great love and celebrate the victory that he's won for us. For Jesus did really lay down his life. He He fulfilled the terms of the covenant which we broke. He kept. Our faith is a resurrection faith. And our hope is an eternal hope. And the God of creation, the God of life, who will call us forth into his presence and into a world where there'll be no more crying or mourning or tears, for the old order of things will have passed away. He says, behold, I make everything new. And so he makes it for us. Isn't that wonderful? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. What else can we say but thank you and we love you? for this astonishing gift that you have given. You set forth your promises to Abram and his offspring, who is ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ in whom we put our faith today. And thank you that through faith we've been adopted into a family where the membership is uncountably large. What a wonderful scene looking at the night sky and all those stars. How wonderful it is that we might be counted among those many stars as children of Abraham and heirs of the promise. So, Lord, we pray you would hold us in your loving arms now and always, even through death, because our hope, our faith, is a resurrection faith. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to sing our response.